0: Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and together, Bruce and I have written and published 35 cookbooks. We just turned in our 36th Mm. cookbook. Unbelievable. If you want to get healthier in the new year, let me say that we have two air fryer books you should check Mm. out. Mm. The Essential Air Fryer Cookbook, which sizes every one of its, what, 5 million recipes (laughs) for every size of air. So, you don't have to do any math. And the Instant Air Fryer Bible which, well, is written for Instant Brands air fryers, but actually you can use it for any air fryer. Those are both available from wherever books are sold, but we're not talking about either of those books in this podcast. We are instead talking about Google's top food searches for 2022. We've got our one-minute cooking tip. Bruce has an interview with Maggie Ju about our new book, and we're going to talk about what's making us happy in food this week. So let's get to it. A lot of people find recipes by
1: going to the internet and going to Google. A recipes. lot of people. What are you
0: old? Well,
1: everybody finds. Not everybody, recipes. because some people still buy our cookbooks.
0: Well, that is true. And, and for thank those you, of you for that. Thank you for that.
1: But for <laughs> those nice of you eating. who don't buy cookbooks and go to the internet, we thought it would be interesting to take a look at Google and find out what the top recipe searches were for the last year. And it's really interesting.
0: Well, let me just say that the first top Google search for the last year off the list, we've chosen six out of the 10 Mm -hmm. that are top of the list. And the first one is something that I knew nothing about until we started writing Instant Pot books. And I believe we've now written three different recipes For this thing called Cincinnati chili in the Instant Pot. It's
1: a slightly sweeter take on chili. It has cinnamon in it and Mm. often cocoa in it. Often. Not necessarily, but often. It rarely has beans, right? So it's just a ground beef chili with cinnamon, sometimes cocoa, Often,
0: it is served on top of spaghetti. Yeah, almost um, always, right? Yep. I, 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 we wrote a copycat recipe for Cincinnati from a chain in our Instapot Pot copycat book. And, again, it was on spaghetti. I mean, mm-hmm. on cooked spaghetti. spaghetti. And there's one other thing that's always true. It is always topped with cheese. No, not cheese. Onions. No, not cheese. What else? A ton of oh, cheese. Oh. <laughs> like a billion, billion pounds of shredded cheese. <laughs> and not, you know,
1: it's on spaghetti, but it's not like Parmesan cheese. It's cheddar cheese. No, that's right. So you're putting this sort of chili-ish meat sauce on spaghetti that's flavored with cinnamon. You're topping it with cheddar cheese often with onions, and that's what people are looking to do. I think
0: the theory was that this was something that occurred because the Cincinnati Bengals played in the Super Bowl this last year, and so it came up about Cincinnati Chili. But honestly, Cincinnati Chili's been around apparently for a while. Again, until we started writing Instant Pot Bible and Instant Pot copycat books, I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know I'm from Texas. Yeah, but you're from Texas, and there's a very specific chili you know about
1: and you like. about chili, you know chili doesn't have beans.
0: That's but even, what this Texan says.
1: Yeah, this Texan over there also taught me that not only do you not put beans in chili, you no. don't put tomatoes in chili, No, and you don't you do use not. ground beef. No, You, you do cut not. up steak, you cut Thank up you. beef into tiny little pieces, you. and you cook it with dried chilies that are pulverized into a nice powder now with
0: garlic and cumin and oregano. That's chili. Yeah, that is, That is really super fine traditional texas chili listen there's a lot of texas chili that's made with ground beef so don't at me on this but (laughs) i am a bit of a chili snob so i love my texas chili with dried chilies as bruce says and cut up beef not ground beef but not stew but tiny little pieces yes exactly but cincinnati chili is its own thing so a second of the top Google searches joke, was something yeah. called Mary Me Chicken. And I have to say that I don't know what Mary Me Chicken is. Really? You spend but, so much time on TikTok and you don't know what
1: Mary uh, Me no, Chicken is? No,
0: actually, I don't spend that much time on TikTok <laughs> anymore. I think you're confusing us, dear. I think after 26 years of marriage, you've officially confused us. I don't spend that much time on TikTok anymore. But uh, Mary Me Chicken became a TikTok fad.
1: 59
0: million views.
1: It is a chicken breast recipe made with cream, garlic, Parmesan cheese sun-dried tomatoes and everybody fell in love with it on TikTok why, and we're googling is it, marry is it, me chicken is it
0: just because you make this chicken and somebody wants to marry you because they eat it is that the deal
1: I actually didn't watch the video so I don't know if somebody made it as a way to propose to someone Where so they made it saying cream, you should marry me cream
0: garlic Parmesan cheese sun-dried th- tomatoes it sounds like olive garden chicken it to sounds me, like but... diarrhea to me <laughs> I mean it sounds like a case of it later sorry that was really crass I, it, it sounds really rich um, I don't know that I would like it but then again the Gentile in our pairing here is kosher and doesn't, doesn't really like much cream and dairy products on meat so what can I tell you? I don't don't at me at this either. I don't eat cheeseburgers. I don't like cheese on You don't burgers. know nothing. No, you I know
1: a lot. You also don't like cheese on a Reuben, and there's no such no. thing as a Reuben without cheese. I
0: grew up going to the Kosher Delicatessen in Dallas, Texas, and there was no cheese on the Reuben. Look,
1: I'm making Reubens for dinner tonight, and you're going to have to tie my hands down to keep me from putting cheese on them.
0: You can put the cheese all over yours. I don't <laughs> I don't care. You can put it all over. I am kosher. You're so. not kosher.
1: <laughs> well, another thing that is... <laughs> has been Googled like crazy in 2022 is mango pie. And I thought this was really interesting because this is a sweetened condensed milk custardy pie with mango puree and a graham cracker crust. It's kind of like a key lime pie, but with mango. I mother
0: used to make a pie with sweetened condensed milk and a graham cracker crust, but it was with canned
1: pineapple.
0: Okay, well, this one is with mango puree, yeah.
1: and the reason it was so big is because the musician and podcast host Hershikesh Herway, and I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, Hershikesh Herway, shared a recipe on CBS Sunday this morning for his mother's, or his
0: grandmother's, mango puree pie. I see. Well, again, mom made something like this. You made it with sweetened condensed milk, and she put canned pineapple and pi- pecans in it, I have to tell you, I thought it was disgusting did as a kid. Did she put mayonnaise in it, too? No, she did not, although we were very, very Christian. But she didn't put <laughs> well, mayonnaise in it. would make it a salad. It. Yeah, it would make it a side <laughs> dish. But we it had to go in the fridge because it had to set up.
1: Mm-hmm. Once you put acid, like lime juice or lemon juice or pineapple or that, mm-hmm. into sweetened condensed milk, mm-hmm. it does. It sets up. It congeals. I think the there thickens. was also Cool
0: Whip involved in this. I think mm-hmm. it was the complete Christian dessert. That's mm-hmm. what I think. So, so despite being kosher it That sounds I, like ambrosia pie. No. No coconut. No, uh, and no orange segments. Pineapple. Pineapple. You got to have the orange, the Mandarin ambrosia orange sections. Must have orange section Well, the Jew doesn't know anything. Well, about when this. I grew up, ambrosia did. What do I know? I don't know anything. Um, what can I tell you? I still think chili's made with <laughs> chopped up steak and not ground beef. <laughs> so what do I know? Um, the another thing that was extraordinarily popular this year was something called Jennifer Aniston salad, and that was the Google search Jennifer <laughs> Aniston salad. Now I didn't know that Jennifer Aniston cooked, In fact, I'll bet you dollars to donuts. Jennifer Aniston doesn't
1: cook. No, she doesn't cook. This is what she ate when she was on the set of Friends a thousand billion years ago. She and Lisa Kudrow would actually eat this salad. It's basically a Cobb salad with chickpeas in it. and that's So what why they is ate. Friends still that influential? I think it's TikTok, of course, because quite honestly, uh, now I don't go on TikTok that much, but I do go on Reels on Facebook. Uh, and for whatever reason, I am shown endless clips of Friends. Well, there's
0: a guy, oh, wow. Wow. Okay, um, I've never even seen an episode of Friends, so that tells you everything you... I also host a podcast about Dante, so that probably tells you everything that you need to know about me. But, uh... It's so interesting that it's still there. I bet you it has partly to do with that guy. Oh, what's his name? Baking with Babish that who he started out uh, making recipes from movies. Remember this guy? Mm -hmm. And then he's gotten so popular and so hip and so hot. And he he would make, you know, I don't know what they ate in uh, the Maltese Falcon. (laughs) And (laughs) that's a MacGuffin. Oh, look it up. <laughs> MacGuffins. That's what the Maltese Falcon is. It's a MacGuffin. Anyway, um, look it up. Uh, see, I got all kinds of literary stuff I can go in. And... So anyway, um, uh, I didn't know Jennifer Aniston cooked. In fact, I don't believe that she does cook. You know what I love to do? I love when I'm mopping my kitchen floor. <laughs> Bruce is, Bruce is laughing because he knows what I'm about to say. I love to imagine international celebrities mopping their kitchen floors. Midler on her hands correct. and he's scrubbing when, the toilet. When I'm mopping my kitchen floor, I'm like, I bet Dolly Parton right now is mopping <laughs> her kitchen floor. I bet she's got the mop out. I and... bet she
1: don't know where the kitchen is in her 17 mansions. <laughs> <laughs> or, or planes. I bet or Tom yeah.
0: Cruise right now is cleaning his toilet out just like I am. I, I It's my thing. It's this weird thing I do that when I clean the house, I imagine celebrities cleaning their houses and it, it makes me... Feel so much better about my life. Okay, so another thing that came up repeatedly in Google searches this year was in the top ten. Bear spaghetti.
1: Now, if you don't know what we're talking about, there's an FX show called The Bear, nope. which is all about life in a restaurant it's and what a, it's like. It's really a wild like, show. It's supposed to be the most accurate portrayal of what it's like to work in a restaurant. Mm. It falls short in a lot of things, but it's actually pretty accurate. I mean, it it doesn't make wanting to work in a restaurant very exciting
0: for no, me. No, you know, you know. Like, can we stop for a minute before we get to the spaghetti? Can just say that I think that there were, you know, a rash of cooking shows that started in the 90s and in the 2000s and, you know, Top Chef came in and all this stuff came in and kitchens appeared incredibly glamorous, restaurant kitchens. And so there was an explosion of chef schools and people wanting to go to chef schools, particularly in the United States and Canada. And I think the thing about this show is that it shows that the life in a kitchen, it, it ain't glamorous. It's like
1: being in the army. It's Mm. really... And there's so much substance abuse in kitchens. But anyway, so bear spaghetti is just a spaghetti they serve on the show. It's a simple spaghetti pomodoro with basil, garlic, and hot chili flakes. And so people wanted to know what that was, which is, I think, the same reason the number one Google food recipe search for 2022 was Sugo, which, Mm. if you know, is just an Italian tomato sauce made with tomatoes, garlic, basil, olive oil. I think that the reason Sugo was the number one search was because of Bear Spaghetti and because of The Bear Show.
0: Oh, I see. So, so, so this show, The Bear, has influenced food trends. Well, we don't know that actually anyone's making Sugo, or no, we but don't know that making, anybody's making this particular pasta pomodoro. We just know that people are interested in what it is. They probably leave it up, so they know what to order in restaurants, or maybe what to stay away from in restaurants. But it's interesting that still and nonetheless, as Network TV dies away as people move to streaming. I should tell you, here's a personal little bit. Bruce and I have completely cut the cord, so we don't. Uh, hold any cable provider. We don't get network television. We stream whatever we watch. We stream everything we watch and we use various streaming services to stream stuff. But, you know, I, I don't have any access to ABC, NBC, anything like that. And it's interesting that was as these networks, FX is one of them, as they start to kind of fall behind and fall down the wayside, they're still able to influence cooking trends still to this day. And that's
1: TikTok. That's because because the people that do watch them get enamored of one or two uh, things on there. Of course. And they spread that news into social media of course. where still
0: millions and millions and tens of millions of people can get to see what they're talking about. Interesting. So they're trying to piggyback. I mean, just still I'm sorry, sorry, this is going to get boring. So, in terms of the business, they're trying to piggyback on the fame of a show that they think more people watch than their TikTok channel, and they're trying to do that by back on piggyback. Backing back on the back, I wow, that was bad. Getting on the back of that thing, and then that is actually becoming more viral than the original show itself.
1: I think it's that and wow, the reverse at the that. same time, because I think producers of these shows on like FX and other networks that know. They're only getting three or four million people instead of the 50 million are looking at these influencers on TikTok and hoping they'll pick up a recipe from their
0: show and even get them a bigger audience. I think it's going in both directions. I mean, all the food stuff that I see on TikTok, and yes, even though I said I don't spend that much time on TikTok, of course, occasionally I'll look at TikTok. And all the food stuff I see is just insane. I mean, it's insane people throwing 500 pounds of spaghetti and 200 pounds of spaghetti sauce on a counter. I'm mixing it up together. I mean, really seriously. That and muck banging. No, it's not muck banging. It's food waste. Well, I see muck banging. Oh, well, I don't see that. And I don't want to see muck banging because it grosses me out. But
1: I do want to put a plug here for our TikTok channel, Cooking with Bruce and Mark, Mm. where I am making a lot of recipes from our newest cookbook, the Instant Air Fryer Bible. And I am not throwing food around. I'm not wasting it. And I'm not muck banging it. No. So if you really want to learn how to make a super fast, easy, delicious air fry recipe, check out our TikTok channel cooking with
0: Bruce and Mark. Okay, before we get to the next segment, let me just say that since Bruce did that, I'll say now would be a great time to remind you that it'd be great for you to rate this podcast, for you to drop a comment that would help tremendously drop down to the bottom of the Google or the Apple podcast page or the Stitcher page, and you can rate this podcast. We see our analytics. And again, we just want to shout out to the state of Oregon. 10% of our (laughs) listeners to this podcast are in the state of Oregon. That's a global ten percent. We must love you. Maybe we should. Move, maybe we should move to Oregon. I think we should. Okay, up next, our one minute cooking tip. And let's see if we can actually do this one in a minute.
1: Are you making a prime rib for New Year's? Well, roast it at 175 degree Fahrenheit in your oven for up to five hours until the internal temperature of the meat reaches 127 what is that name, Fahrenheit. that so When you put a meat thermometer in the meat to the thickest part without touching bone, the, the temperature inside the meat should be 127 to 130. That'll give you a nice medium rare. Take it out. Let it sit on top of the stove for one hour. Then back into a 450 Fahrenheit degree oven for 10 minutes to
0: brown the outside. This is the best way, honestly. It's called what the reverse sear or the reverse. I don't know. It's not sear and shove, nope. but it's kind of the it's re- a slow, reverse that. It's a slow slow slow, slow, and then you sear it at the end. It's really the finest way to make a standing rib roast. If you're doing it this holiday, please do it. And by the way, let me say one more thing about standing rib roasts. When you buy them. Tell the butcher not to cut it off oh, the bone. Because Shanda is the bone. <laughs> well, see, the kosher goy knows what that means. Um, <laughs> because you cut it off the bone, then you lose part of the bone's flavor. And the bone flavor in the meat is the whole point of a standing rib roast. So keep it on the bone. Up next, Bruce's interview with Maggie Ju, author of Chinese Homestyle. Today,
1: I'm speaking with Maggie Ju. She's the creative and culinary force behind the popular and delicious website, omnivorescookbook.com. There you'll find authentic Chinese recipes from all regions of China, as well as a ton of cooking videos and cooking courses. And now her first cookbook is out, Chinese Homestyle, Everyday Plant-Based Recipes for Takeout, Dim Sum, Noodles, and more. Welcome, Maggie.
2: Hi, how are you?
1: I'm great. Thanks for joining me. I wanna start by talking about your culinary journey. You wrote that you grew up in China, but you didn't learn to cook until you were out of that country and away from your family. So tell me how you found your way into the kitchen.
2: Uh, It was uh, back in, uh, after I graduated from college, I needed to go to Japan for my uh, master's degree. And uh, I grew up in a traditional family. Like my mom cooks three meals every day for us. And she just never really, even bother to teach me cooking because she think, you know, I better spend my time on my homework and I just focus on study, don't worry about it. And uh, so I moved to Japan and I have to, you know, how to survive. So I have to, you know, it's very expensive to eat out. So I have to cook uh, and I started to uh, just call my mom to be like, oh, how to do certain things, you know, like, oh, how, how you did that uh, cabbage stir fry that I like. and. Uh, like most chinese you know chefs or home cooks she does she never does measurement she would tell me like oh you, you just cut it and you you do this and this and add a splash of soy sauce, and you cook until, until it's right and obviously i don't really understand what is right and i really never get to cook anything that i exactly like what my mom made so i started to read more cookbooks in actually in Japanese and magazines written by Japanese home cooks and it surprises me that their cooking method are extremely thorough and their measurement very very accurate every time they have step-by-step pictures like how you cut this even you know like those tiny little things like you can see everything like how to prepare a dish and it really helped me and I remember my first dish was a sweet and sour chicken like, I just suddenly feel like, oh, I really, really want a good sweet and sour chicken and I have no idea how to make it. And I learned from this Japanese magazine and, and all my, uh, classmates are like, I have back then I have friends coming to, you know, same school from China. They're like super impressed. They're like, wow, this is so complicated. How you can even make this at home? I was like, I just learned from a magazine. That journey re- still affect me today because I feel like, you know, it's, complicated. Chinese cooking is not super easy and intuitive, and you actually um, have to learn. And it's really, really helpful when you have the pictures and the measurement when you're starting out.
1: you mentioned sweet and sour chicken. I think that's what Mm -hmm. most people in the US think about Chinese food, sweet and sour, general sows, mushu pork, spare ribs. Why did you choose to go plant based?
2: So actually, there are a couple of reasons. Um, So now I live in the US, Uh, my husband is American. So a couple years back, he suddenly announced that he wants to go plant based just this one day I went from a trip, like for a week, I come back, he's like, Oh, I'm vegan now. I was like, what? Uh, I mean, he's actually not vegan, but he 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 decided to try it out because uh, he liked to uh, long run. And sometimes he trained for a marathon. And he tried out this uh, plant-based diet and he think it helps him to recover from the training. So I kind of went along with it, like, like, okay, fine. I, I don't mind trying it out with you. And I actually, I discovered the diet is itself is kind of interesting. It, I don't, I feel like I feel less heavy. I, I do yoga myself. And I feel like, oh, this really helped with the yoga. I feel like I'm a little bit more flexible and it's just like because I don't feel heavy so I can do exercise and do yoga better. So I, we consciously started to eat more plant-based at home and that's like the starting point. Back then we were living in Austin, Texas and then we moved to New York City where we actually get exposed to all those great Chinese vegan and vegetarian restaurants. Back in China, I had a few experience with uh, vegetarian Chinese food, but it's not that popular back then. Uh, So in New York city, I actually got to um, try out different type of, uh, you know, vegetarian Chinese cuisine prepared like totally meatless. I was really blown my mind because I thought it tastes really great, really satisfying and the flavor is so great that I do not miss the meat at all. But in China, people actually eat a lot of vegetables. Like every meal, we do have some meat dishes, but vegetable is a very core part of Chinese cooking. Like because we eat that every day. And I really, really think you can use those sauces and spices, make vegetable delicious. And I think it's just a great thing to talk about.
1: So let's start talking about those sauces. Your book starts off with seven homemade Mm. sauces and condiments. Can you talk a bit about the importance of these sauces in homestyle cooking, and why is it worth our time to make them ourselves?
2: I think it just tastes better because, like chili oil, black bean sauce, all those sauces, like we use them all the time. Like chili oil is, like if you if you like hot sauce, you know, make it a little bit spicy. Sometimes just add fragrance. It's uh, something we use almost daily. When you make it at home, you can have a control of the ingredients. And you can use a good quality oil. You can use like really nice chili pepper and all that spices. Uh, When I make those sauces at home, I do add more aromatics like fresh ginger, garlic, and green onion, and those like make a big difference because when you buy the bottled sauce, they have to think about the shelf life. So sometimes, you know, the, the fresh aromatics are replaced with like powder. But when you make it at home, you can add plenty of those aromatics. It's just like way more fragrant. So it's just like fresher.
1: And if you make these seven sauces, um, you can then make every dish in your book?
2: These are really great country staples to have. And it just makes certain dishes so much easier. And it adds like a lot of flavors. But you do need, like I write about in the open chapter, you need certain things like like a good soy sauce, you know, like a vinegar, good vinegar. All these are really the very basic things that you you need to purchase actually throughout
1: the book you take some classic dishes and you veganize Mm -hmm. them you make bang bang king mushrooms instead of bang bang chicken and i had to do a double take at that gorgeous photo because you managed to have this dish look like the original looks like shreds of chicken in that beautiful sauce tell me about this dish and why do these mushrooms work so well as a chicken substitute
2: Oh, I, I really love that dish because I think, um, a lot of vegetables, like, um, Asian vegetables are really underappreciated because, um, for example, the king oyster mushroom I used in the ban ban mushroom dish. The mushroom is like, uh, this very large, uh, mushroom that have a very big and long stem and it's very tough in texture. So, and it's, it has a very stringy texture. So you can actually, if you use a fork or use a knife, you can kind of shred it, kind of like you shred the chicken. And after you shred it, it's still like really tough and keep its shape, even when like, no matter if you steam them, you know, uh, stir fry or bake them, it keeps its shape and it has this like, just like a little stringy and it kind of crisp up if you actually bake it. The taste is kind of mild, but it has like a little, you know, mushroomy, umami taste that I feel like is a, That's just the perfect substitute.
1: And you have an entire chapter on vegan dim sum, Mm -hmm. everything from scallion pancakes to char siu bao, which are roast pork buns. Mm -hmm. So how do you make char siu bao vegetarian?
2: So I think for any dishes, uh, when you want to convert like originally like a meat dish to vegetarian or vegan, uh, it's really about the taste and the texture. So you want to get the both part right. So it tastes like, you know, Kind of like the original version. So for the texture part, I feel like the bun recipe, you know, the bun itself is a vegetarian by nature. So if that's just, if you, if, if you make a bun that's like nice and fluffy and airy, that's going to get you halfway there. And then the filling, again, texture and flavor. So I think the key is to make a great char siu sauce. Like, it, you know, you use like that, that is like really, really important part. And then I use mushroom. I actually try the several different ingredients. I tried tofu, tempeh and, you know, different type of mushroom. I settled on actually just a brown mushroom because it's mild. It has a nice texture, like tender and it absorbs a lot of flavor. And it's not like too strong. I tried with shiitake mushroom, it's like, Ooh, that's just like too much. I, I, I couldn't, you know, I, I, after this few things, we have got the fluffy bun, you get the really, really tasty sauce with the mushroom, just like mild, tender with a little bit umami it it, it makes a really good chershu
1: bun. So we're back to talking about how sauces really are the basis here of really good, authentic, home-style Chinese cooking. Yes,
2: and I do have that chershu sauce because I think it is way more superior than the bottled sauce you buy.
1: You write in the book that many of these recipes take some time and effort, and I think we all know that making Chinese food at home does take time and effort. But to make things a bit easier, I love that you have step-by-step photos on how to seal dumplings and roll up spring rolls. Mm -hmm. Just like you explained, you first learned by looking at these Mm step-by-step Japanese recipes. You offer that in your book. But what advice do you have for a home cook trying to make dumplings of any kind for the first time?
2: I feel like the biggest thing is the patient. You have to be very patient about things. And uh, you know i like i highly recommend this to be like a weekend project you definitely do not want to rush home after a full day of work and be like oh i need to really put dinner on the table in like 30 minutes that's just like not gonna work so like say give yourself plenty of time and just make it like a fun project i highly recommend to do this with friends or family if that's possible you know like let people help you because like dumpling making in china is like it's always a teamwork that's why I do tell people, you know, I don't sugarcoat it. I tell people it's, you know, it is hard because we actually have to work as a team and everybody has this, their own role and we do it together to make it, you know, less time consuming. And, uh, you know, I feel like you can ask your, your, your partner, your kids or friend, like make it fun. And, uh, and also do not really get too fixated on how it looks like because even for me, I after like many, many years, I make so many dumplings and wontons and spring rolls. I still feel like every time I start cooking, I will make like three ugly ones before I started to look better. I was like after after the 50 dumpling, I was like, oh, this look really good. You know, it does take a lot of practice and uh, I, they will taste delicious no matter how it looks. So don't get bit. Be- get frustrated when it's like, oh, why this doesn't look like the, you know, ones made by professional professional chef who kind of like, you know, who makes thousands of dumplings per day. So just take it slow. And uh, if you're making, uh, wrapping dumplings by yourself, you know, put on a show, you know, a radio, you know, good music, like just uh, have fun.
1: I want to talk about dan dan noodles, very very popular in the US, usually made with minced pork. The secret to making them so satisfying without meat is that again the sauce. It
2: is a big part. Um I think for dan dan noodle you have a, you need to have a really good chili oil. So that's like there are there uh, there are other elements of it, but the chili oil is re- really is like a, the biggest thing and uh, you can actually buy a really good chili oil these days. I feel like Sichuan food gets so popular in the U.S., like in, in the past three years, it kind of exploded. Like every, there are so many like, uh, artisan brands. They started to create those like nice chili oils and all that. And I think they're great. If you don't want to make them at home, that's, you know, totally fun. It's, uh, you can find out, you can, you can get those ingredients, uh, by shopping online or, or find at the store. So that's the, that's the sauce part. And I do think for Dandan Noodle, the, the noodle is the main star. That you really, if, if if again, if possible, um, it will be helpful if you can get to a you can shop at an Asian market. And the type like the Dandan Noodle I use in my dish is the is fresh noodles. Where you find you usually find at the Asian market, you go to the refrigerated section, and when you boil them, it usually has like a more chewy texture than the dried noodles. And the other thing is, you know, we we all know that dandan noodle usually has a little bit of pork in it, but I actually feel like you just need a little bit. It's more for flavor and texture. Dandan noodle is not a meat dish. You just need that that little bit of topping to like make things a little bit more satisfying. So I used my own um, topping, which is made with nuts and tofu. And then I used all the spices and the pickles that you know not use in the authentic, like the original Italian noodle. So you really give that the same flavor uh, that really like give it a boost. And and then it, the topping also adds some volume and the texture to the dish.
1: Well, Chinese cuisine isn't known for its desserts, you do offer up a chapter of sweet treats, you've got sticky rice cakes filled with red bean paste and sesame brittle and homemade boba tea. But you have a spiced candied walnut yeah. that is so beautiful and looked so Thank crunchy. You. Tell me about these nuts and are they just good for dessert?
2: Uh, so this actually, there's a little bit more backstory about this. So the candied nut itself is not a very traditional dish. We do have um, candied apple and candied sweet potato. These are usually served in a like in a restaurant setting. It used kind of like a dessert course at the end. Like my favorite is the sweet potato. So you, you cut the sweet potato into like small size, like bite size. And it's deep fried until tender and crispy. And then it's made in this, like, you know, the, the, shu- made in the sugar and the hot oil. When, when they serve it, it's still a little bit soft. So you take it out and you can see all the sugar stretching out. Like it's super, like it's so fun and pretty. And you dip the sweet potato with like the, all the sugar coating in the cold water. So it immediately uh, crystallize and become this uh, crusty and crispy shelf and you just eat it hot. And that's the original. It's like super fun and super difficult to make. You know, deep frying, uh, cooking the hot sugar, you have to serve it immediately and you eat it immediately after, because if you let it sit for 15 minutes, it become like rock hard and it starts, it's like difficult to eat. So I kind of take that idea to make make it with the nuts because it's so much easier when you don't have to do some deep frying before you know making something candied and and it's really tasty in china we make a lot of spice nuts so i actually have that recipe in my appetizer um, chapter it's called citron spicy nuts so you just make peanuts you uh, cook it with tons of like uh, chili pepper and citron peppercorn and you know give that like numbing tingly flavor and it's really fun so we do have that kind of like spicy nuts in China and usually it's packaged and uh, as, eat as a snack so I kind of combine these two into candied nuts so I'd say it's a nice dessert but also if you're hosting a party I would just serve it you know there as a snack or appetizer or whatever to you know for, for fun
1: Maggie Zhu these recipes sound amazing your book is beautiful Everybody needs to go take a look at your book, Chinese Homestyle, Everyday Plant-Based Recipes for Takeout, Dim Sum, Noodles, and More. Hey, thanks for spending some time with me this morning.
2: Thank you. It's really great talking to you.
0: So we've talked about this book already on the podcast and it is a plant-based Chinese cookbook Mm -hmm. and it was kind of interesting to hear her journey or process, right? It was, it was. She's she was really great. I like talking with her a lot. Yeah, it's it's really nice when you get people who are passionate about what they do, Mm -hmm. who are interested in what they do. It's a really wonderful thing. And
1: it's rare that I will have an interview with a cookbook author or a foodie like that and have to stop myself from the end from asking if then we
0: could have dinner together. (laughs) And I had to stop myself. (laughs) Well, okay. I, I think we live a little remote in rural New England for us to have dinner together, but sure, okay. As is traditional, this is our last segment of the podcast going with Bruce and Mark. It's what's making us happy in food this week. It's not only our last What's
1: Making Us Happy in Food this week, it's our last What's Making Us Happy in Food this week of 2022. Oh, wow. And what has made me the happiest at the last minute is an
0: aged ribeye steak for two. Ah, you stole mine. You stole
1: mine last time with the pet uh, You
0: just stole it. Okay, go on. So go on. Mark go and on. I
1: both are enjoying that And we, the reason we both think this is because last night we went out to dinner with friends to a restaurant called Geppetto in Torrington, Connecticut, up near where we live. And they have this aged 40-ounce ribeye steak for two that is charred beyond belief on the outside, rare in the middle, salty as hell, served with the
0: crunchiest potatoes, and we just sucked it down. We do. I have to tell you that one of my favorite things to do – this is a ribeye, but one of my favorite things to do is split a porterhouse with Bruce. We'll go and get a giant – porterhouse and we'll grill it and really if you know us you know that he cuts the meat away from the bone and I take the bone and he takes most of the meat and I gnaw on the bone. You are always he... welcome to have my bones. Thank you. And I I love doing that and I love splitting steaks. I think it's really interesting. To, uh, it's really romantic. Mm-hmm. And I think the most memorable time I ever did this was we went to this restaurant in Florence, Quattro Leone Four mm-hmm. Lions, and we saw this French couple eating <laughs> each eating a one kilo porterhouse. They each each, yeah. each and they were thin as rails. And on the menu it even said this steak is for two. If you don't know that it's 2.2 pounds. And it was for two people but they each ate one. Yes they each <laughs> ate one. So I was like you know we were eating whatever we were eating I was eating my pasta or whatever. We were I eating that. Gnocchi. And I thought I want to come back and I want to I don't want to have that whole steak but I want to split that steak with Bruce and get a really nice bottle of wine and that's my dinner. So we did. We went back a few days later for dinner. We sat down at our table. The waiter came up. We ordered the kilo size giant mm-hmm. porterhouse. We ordered a really nice bottle of red wine. He's like, you know, what contorne do you want? The side what, dishes, what, potatoes, spinach. What appetizers, what first courses, what premium do you want? The whole bit. And we're like, no, 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 no. You're steak misunderstanding. Steak and wine. The, the point of this activity is to order a giant steak and split a really nice bottle of wine. And that is the end of the activity. It is what makes us happy in food many weeks. Yeah, many a day. So thank you for listening this year to cooking with bruce and mark we're glad you've been with us on this journey thanks for being a constant companion with us on this journey connect with us on instagram under our own names bruce a weinstein or mark scarborough or check out our facebook group cooking with bruce and mark and we look forward to being with you next year 2023
1: with many new episodes of cooking with bruce and mark